Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, my name is Stephen Latham. I'm director of Yale's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics, and I'm hosting today's uh, podcast for the Rudd Center on Health Policy and Obesity because the Rudd Center and the Bioethics Center are pleased to be co-hosting today's guest, uh, Paul Thompson. Paul was uh, trained in philosophy at uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and he is currently the Kellogg Chair in Agricultural, Food, and Community Ethics at Michigan State University. Uh, Paul's research has been in the philosophy of technology and is centered on ethical and philosophical questions associated with agriculture and food. And uh, he'll be talking with me today about uh, food technology as uh, the about the ethics of emerging technologies in food and, in, to some extent, also in agriculture. So, Paul, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Um, how does a philosopher start thinking about emerging technologies in agriculture and in food? Well, I think that uh, it's uh, you kind of start with the technology. There is a uh, there we've seen. Uh, a lot of change over 200 years in the way that our food is uh, produced and, you know, where it comes from. Uh, you know, we don't go back to our backyard and get our food. We don't necessarily know uh, who produced it. But it's really only in the last 20 years that we've started asking hard ethical questions about uh, uh, changes in the way our food is produced and uh, uh, some of the broader questions of what that means for the environment and for food safety and for our culture. So I guess I might start today by uh, uh, picking up a theme that uh, I talked about at the Rudd Center talk earlier this afternoon, which is uh, the emergence of nanotechnologies in food. Uh, Can you give us some examples of nanotechnologies in food? Well, probably a a good example that everyone would have some familiarity with uh, would be nanotechnologies that are used in food packaging. So we might say this is not so much nanotechnology in food as it is nanotechnology around food. Um, But uh, everyone has uh, uh, opened a a food container, a bag of chips or crackers or coffee, uh, and seen that uh, shiny foil-looking stuff on the inside. Uh, And that's actually a nanotechnology. It's basically a uh, a, a very thin, nano-thin, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter, so we're talking about something that's infinitesimally smaller than a human hair. Uh, but it, it, at least in that one dimension, it's nano-thin, and it's created by uh, a process of uh, uh, binding of uh, metallic uh, atoms that's then applied to a regular plastic bag. And its function is to keep uh, microbes out and keep freshness in. And it's an example of a technology that uh, has been used in packaging for at least 15 years or so. Uh, The packaging industry is also experimenting with some new nanotechnologies that would have active capacities that might be able to sense when uh, your food is uh, starting to spoil. Uh, or might have uh, antimicrobial materials embedded in the package that would retard spoilage. Uh, and I guess another example would be uh, nano-enabled uh, refrigerators and devices so that you could imagine your refrigerator giving you a call on your cell phone to tell you that your milk had spoiled. My refrigerator would never stop calling. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Um, so, so what are some uh, hazards of these uh, new nanotechnological? Well, I don't want to be alarmist about this, but I think uh, people who work in packaging are constantly asking a set of questions about any new packaging material. Uh, And the the questions uh, really revolve around whether or not those materials actually stay in the package or whether or not they have any opportunity to move into the foods. And this becomes, I think, uh, particularly problematic for some of the more active kinds of nanomaterials because uh, uh, if you have a a, a nano property that has uh, an antimicrobial uh, property, that's great as long as it stays in the package, but what happens uh, when it gets into the food and gets uh, consumed? So uh, there's quite a bit of work going on both within the packaging industry and within uh, the risk assessment community on trying to understand what the chances of that would be and uh, what happens uh, in case it does, and really trying to ascertain whether some of these new uh, technologies are are truly safe. And I think that what's useful about this example is that everybody wants to keep microbes out of their food. That's the whole point. Uh, emerging technologies have a, a classic structural problem, uh, which is that they're usually, or at least often, introduced uh, as a response to one set of risks, and uh, but the problem is that they may introduce a whole new class of risks, uh, and that I think in, is is in a nub the the basic uh, set of issues that start us thinking about emerging technologies. When you're thinking about emerging emerging technologies, I, I assume at some point you want to weigh the kinds of risks you're getting rid of against the kinds of risks that you might be creating by your intervention. Is that is that the right approach to take? Well, certainly that's been uh, an approach that's been taken in uh, many areas of uh, technology. If you look at uh, the area that I know well is agricultural pesticides, and that's precisely uh, the approach that the Environmental Protection Agency approach, uh, takes. Uh, with respect to food, we've actually been a bit more cautious than that. Uh, and uh, the approach at uh, the Food and Drug Administration Uh, has been to uh, really once any kind of clear hazard has been identified uh, and uh, they've ascertained that there's really uh, any significant chance that uh, people would be exposed to that hazard, uh, they've really just largely banned that technology from application in the food system. I think the the next set of uh, issues is it's not so much one of weighing the risks as much as it is whether or not that... uh, regulatory system is adequately equipped for making the determination of uh, what the risks are. Uh, In the case of some of these nanotechnologies, uh, regulators are currently struggling with some really difficult technical issues in terms of actually assessing what the risks are. Nanoparticles don't behave the way that larger particles behave, and some of the traditional laboratory methods for testing toxicity Uh, may not be applicable for uh, nanoparticles. Another problem specifically related to foods is that uh, the Food and Drug Administration has administered its uh, risk policy for many years uh, using what's called the grass list, generally regarded as safe. And this this goes back to the origins of food safety uh, laws back at the early years of the 20th century. Uh, people were concerned about things that were being added to foods and uh, uh, ways in which uh, uh, new kinds of packaging, in, that, in those days it was tin cans, might be introducing um, uh, toxic substances into food. 
uh, but uh, recognize that foods encompass many, many substances uh, that uh, we human beings have been eating for centuries, and it just seemed kind of silly to think that you would go back and try to do toxicological tests on everything. I mean, we've been eating watermelon for a long time, and you wouldn't expect watermelon to be something that is toxic. So the response was to create a fairly long list that includes whole foods like watermelon, but it also includes a number of uh, chemicals and substances that are used in baking and cooking and processing foods that are on this list of generally regarded as safe. Uh, and it's been a fairly effective approach. Occasionally, things have been found to be uh, problematic that were on the grass list, but uh, the, uh, uh, the, the approach has been largely effective for FDA, but nanotechnologies raise uh, a new set of issues, which, uh, which really revolve around the thought that something that might be safe at a large, by large I mean still very, very small, minute particle the size of a period perhaps, but at, at, a, at a above nanoscale, at a, a macro scale, uh, would have very different properties at the nanoscale. So a good example of that would be uh, silver, which uh, has fairly mild antimicrobial properties uh, at any scale. If uh, Silver will kill microbes, but uh, and if it's consumed, uh, we don't normally eat a lot of silver, but if we did happen to eat a little bit as a byproduct, it would pass through the body without any problem. But at the nanoscale, uh, silver takes on very, very potent antimicrobial properties. So there's at least the potential that uh, a substance which could be quite safe when consumed at the above nanoscale could take on toxic properties at the below nanoscale. And, of course, the other part of that issue from a risk assessment standpoint is that when it becomes quite small, it's much more easily absorbed into tissues, might move through body tissues uh, quite differently from larger than nanomaterials, and uh, could eventually uh, make its way uh, into the brain, crossing the, the blood-brain barrier. So uh, the introduction of nano-sized materials uh, into anything, I mean, we're seeing pants and socks and uh, laundry detergents and washing machines that are using nano silver. We actually don't see that being introduced into foods. Uh, but uh, the use of these materials uh, in an environment where they might get into food uh, raises a whole new set of questions from a risk assessment standpoint uh, about uh, um, where these particles go, what their toxic properties are, uh, and it's it's led to a new round of uh, thinking and experimentation at our regulatory agencies. So one kind of problem with emerging technologies is we're often not very good at assessing the risk that goes with them. How good are we at figuring out what happens to nanoparticles when they're introduced to a human body? Well, I think from an ethics standpoint, your question, I'm not going to answer your question, but <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to build on your question to say that's precisely where I think uh, um, you know some of the uh, some of the debate really starts to rise, and so you know one perspective on this is that uh, uh, you know we should uh, um, simply not use these technologies until they've been proven safe. This is what's often associated with the precautionary principle when we have a new technology that uh, we're not sure we really understand. Um, you know, we should just let's forego use of that until we uh, have had either some experience with it or 
some sort of uh, laboratory testing that gives us a reason to think uh, that it's safe. I think the, the counterbalancing view, and this may get us back into your weighing the risks uh, suggestion, is that uh, you know the technologies we've been talking about are all technologies that uh, were created to reduce one set of fairly well understood risks, uh, risks that we know are in our food system right now, uh, and they seem to be a way to address uh, some of the possibilities of uh, contamination by uh, salmonella or E. coli or microbes that currently are viewed as one of the most significant food safety problems we face. So you really are in this situation of, uh, on the one hand, you have a technology which seems to be effective in reducing a known risk, but it may have what some would say uh, a, a totally speculative possible risk uh, on the other side. Uh, and I think an advocate of the technology is going to say, well, let's take the known benefits and not worry so much about the speculative risks. Whereas somebody that's much more inclined towards a precautionary view is going to say, well, you know, if there's a potential hazard here, and we do know that there are potential hazards, or at least we can't be sure that there aren't, uh, we should be much more cautious about uh, using some of these new technologies. Any thoughts on what inclines some people to uh, lean toward precautionary principle and what inclines others to lean the other way and think about the advantages of new technology? Well, I do think food is an interesting case. And um, I think that, uh, I'm not sure, it might have been Claude Levi-Strauss who first suggested that food has to be good to eat, but it also has to be good to think. And uh, food resonates for us in strange and mysterious ways. It, it works its way into our culture in uh, uh, very unusual uh, ways. And people from different cultures uh, associate very different things as food. We rarely eat insects for food in the United States, but there are many parts of the world where insects are a normal part of the diet and looked on as a rare treat. Uh, some of those crunchy locusts, yum yum, you know. Um, so uh, we have a we have a set of you know there we really can't say that these beliefs are fully rational, but they uh, really operate at a deep level with us, and they are part of what makes us who we are, who we are as a culture. So when there is a tendency to start talking about uh, introducing risks into food, I think uh, many of the precautionary responses go along with a, a kind of yuck factor response, which is, hey, don't mess with my food. Uh, and I think from an ethics standpoint, um, you know, one could ask, uh, you know, why not? Why should someone have to produce a risk assessment uh, just to say that they don't want to eat um, some item or, or that they want to avoid some other item? You know, there's really, if we started trying to make all of our food decisions into rationally based uh, principles that were demonstrated by scientific uh, scientific evidence, we probably uh, would be very late for lunch. It'd be the, <laughs> the short answer to that. Uh, we we have a lot of uh, um, you know culturally based attitudes and things like genetically engineered food or uh, uh, nanoparticles or um, nano encapsulation is another technology that's being used. So here's a a technology that has a nano thin layer that would be wrapped around something like vitamin E or fish oil and would allow us to get nutrients into processed foods that are, are either are hard to get there either because they're, they're vulnerable, they tend to break down in the production process, that would be the case for vitamin E, or in the case of fish oil, we just don't like the way it tastes. 
So you encapsulate those in a in a in a very thin layer of uh, a nano lipid or fat, a kind of oil that would uh, would go around a, a small bit of that food, and then you can bake it into your bread, and you get your daily fish oil uh, when you eat your peanut butter sandwich, and it doesn't taste anything like fish. Um, and it sounds, uh, on the one hand, to some people that sounds great. Uh, but to other people, you know, there's just supposed to be any fish oil in your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? It just kind of makes you feel like this is a a, a, a distasteful thing, uh, and and you know why should why should why not why not uh, uh, just let people go with whatever you know they've been brought up to think belongs in food or is culturally appropriate. So we kind of get into you know that's that's something that has brought along. Uh, laws that uh, would call for more labeling, uh, much more aggressive uh, uh, labeling of genetically engineered ingredients and possibly some of these other kinds of technologies. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, the labeling laws have been resisted by the food industry and agricultural producers who feel like, uh, you know, they really, people are just getting too worried about their foods. Another uh, topic that you raised earlier in your talk today, it's, it's arguably uh, nanotechnological because of the biology that's involved and the scale at which that occurs. But you were talking about um, synthetic meat as an emerging food technology. Right. Can you give us a little reflection on that? So synthetic meats are probably, they're anywhere from five to ten years away, maybe more than that. Who knows? We don't know whether this will work. But these are an adaptation of uh, stem cell technologies that allow you to uh, take uh, animal cells and uh, develop meat products out of them. And uh, um, the main reason, the main ethical thrust behind synthetic meat has been that uh, you get a food product from, that we normally derive uh, from an animal, and uh, increasingly those animals are produced in uh, settings that are found ethically problematic. Animals are crowded together. They're not allowed to move around as much as uh, they would in a normal situation. And, of course, there's a basic ethical vegetarianism argument for not eating animals in the first place. All of the animals, no matter how they're raised, are ultimately killed in order to be turned into food products. So you have a kind of push for let's create a food product uh, that avoids these ethical problems that we associate with uh, uh, with eating um, meats, um, one of the you know, and and so I think there actually is a fairly powerful ethical argument behind synthetic meat. On the other hand, um, there seems to be a very strong reaction that uh, cuts in a very different direction uh, from uh, let's you know the suggestion that we might use a similar kind of technology to say just produce a cow or a chicken. Uh, that didn't have a brain, um, you know, an encephalitic animal. And so you actually have uh, what would otherwise look like an animal. It has an, an ordinary eating response, uh, and uh, it uh, produces meat, but it doesn't feel uh, any pain because it doesn't have any sense of external environment. So it can't suffer, so if we put it in a factory farm, it doesn't matter. That's exactly right. Uh, that, however, almost everybody thinks is uh, ethically horrific, uh, and they find it to be a uh, very troubling kind of scenario. And I think this, this, may, this may be just one of these philosophical puzzles, but uh, uh, the question is, uh, you know, why is that uh, encephalitic cow uh, really different than a plate of synthetic meat? Why is it that uh, uh, the same people that 
think that synthetic meat is a great idea on animal welfare grounds uh, find that uh, that uh, encephalitic cow to be ethically horrendous. And I, I think it is a genuine philosophical conundrum. I think that uh, you know trying to pull out the reasonings, I'm not even sure there really are any reasons. This may just be one of our our deeply embedded irrational uh, sets of beliefs about what counts as food and what doesn't. Well, I think uh, we're running a little low on time, and what we'll do is uh, we'll leave our uh, listening audience to puzzle about whether they think there's any difference between uh, eating beef that comes from a cow that's been raised to be brainless and eating beef that's raised in a trough via stem cell technology. And thank you very much, Paul, for a very interesting conversation. And uh, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks, all. Thanks.